Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 922. To begin the program, David Lorelo welcomes June Lee, writer at ESPN, and Jeff Levering, broadcaster for the Milwaukee Brewers. David, June, and Jeff discuss things like the appreciation of players related to their media markets, whether it be Milwaukee or Los Angeles, and how Shohei Otani should be an absolute star. The trio also cover things like the concept of ties in baseball, the recent wave of no-hitters, and reaching different age groups of fans. They also talk about how the baseball stars of yesteryear are not quite the same as today's icons. And also to June's point, Mickey Mantle was hanging out with stars of stars. <laughs> yeah. He was going out and, and having a good time and putting himself out there. And, and Trout's just not that guy. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with him not being that guy. After that, Fangraph's own Tony Wolf and Sarah Sanchez dive deeper into the unusual flurry of no-nos so far this season. Sarah recently wrote on the historical frequency of no-hitters being way up, and Tony examined Wade Miley's own effort for the Reds. They go over things like the possible effects of the changes to the ball, wondering if 2021 will set the record for the most no-hitters, and how too much of a good thing can make things a little less exciting. I remember watching Homer Bailey's first no-hitter back in 2012, and I had never seen a pitcher from my favorite team throw a no-hitter yet. Of course, I was a, I was a younger person then, but I, I remember in that game, from like the fifth inning on, I'm completely insane. Like, I'm losing my mind. <laughs> I'm on my feet. I'm gasping every time someone makes contact. I'm jumping in the air every time someone swings and misses. Like, I'm on the edge. And I'm basically the same way in 2013. When Wade Miley threw his no-hitter on Friday, I was like happy for the guy. There was just that like dulled, feeling in, in my head where I'm like, man, Wade, I just saw, this is, this is a lot. This is a lot of no-hitters, man. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm happy for Wade. Fangraphs Audio is brought to you by our listeners and supporters. If you enjoy the show every week and are a fan of the many things we do at Fangraphs.com, consider checking out our merch page. We've got shirts, mugs, hoodies, hats, and of course, ad-free subscriptions, which are the best way to help support the site. We truly couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Warla. My guests on this segment are Jeff Levering, radio broadcaster for the Milwaukee Brewers, and June Lee, staff writer for ESPN. June, let's start with you. You recently wrote about how MLB needs to do a better job of marketing itself to a younger audience. How might it go about doing that? This is a topic that I, I constantly think about as a 25-year-old, and I'm always thinking about how to write for people my age and cover the sport in my age uh, for, for people my age to make it appealing. Um, because, I mean, the reality is that I've grown up in the age of the internet where there's so many different ways to occupy my attention, whether that's YouTube or Instagram or social media in general or Netflix. There's so many entertainment options. And just, I think among the major sports in America, I, I just tend to find that there's fewer baseball fans compared to football or basketball or even soccer to a certain degree. And so it's, it's a topic that's always been on my mind. And I think the last couple of, of years or so, we're starting to see this influx of incredibly exciting young players. I think we have a generation of young stars right now in Fernando Tatis, Juan Soto, Ronald Acuna Jr., you know, even extending that to Mookie Betts, who's older than those guys, that are bringing more excitement to the game to the most casual of baseball fans than I think we've seen in a long time. And I think it's kind of a departure from how we've seen the game marketed 
the last five years, especially where I think much of it centered around pretty much Bryce Harper and Mike Trout. And I, I think we're now seeing kind of a a larger range of players that the sport is willing to market, a, a bigger range of personalities, a, a bigger range of cultural backgrounds. Uh, and I, I think it's, I mean, it's only good for the game. I feel like there's just a generally a sense of momentum right now behind the sport behind these young stars and trying to appeal to a, a younger generation of sports fans. And I guess the question, June, and you could address this as well, Jeff, is uh, Mike Trout was just mentioned. Mickey Mantle was nothing short of an icon in sure. the 1950s into the 60s. As great as Trout is, he's not nearly as famous as Mantle once was. Is that actually MLB's fault or is it, as June alluded to, a matter of the times that we live in? You know, I, th I think it's it's a it's a nuanced issue because the reality is Mickey Mantle played in New York and he was a New York Yankee, so there's that element to it. And Mike Trout plays for the Los Angeles Angels, and they haven't made the playoffs, and he's never had a big playoff moment. I think, in terms of just the general mystique of building the persona legend of a sports icon, the postseason moments are such a big deal in kind of creating that, and so I think it's important that. Mike Trout, in order for Mike Trout to achieve that kind of, you know, icon status, it's going to be really important for him to play in the postseason period. But beyond that, I think it's it's also that Trout doesn't necessarily put himself as a personality out there as much as, you know, Mickey Mantle had this like celebrity around him that Mike Trout simply doesn't. And, you know, I think it's important for athletes to be authentic to themselves and how they market themselves. And so... You know, Mike Trout's not a guy who's putting them out himself out there in the way that, you know, someone like Fernando Tatis does or some of the other younger guys in the sport. And so it's it's kind of a multifaceted issue where I think it's it's hard to place all of the blame on Major League Baseball because at the end of the day, Mike Trout is only going to do as much as Mike Trout wants to do. And so there's a push and pull here. And on top of all of that, like Mickey Mantle again was a New York Yankee, and I think you know the Yankee brand is in baseball is just so iconic within American pop culture. Yeah, Jeff, what do you think? I'm in 100% agreement with June. I think because Mike Trout plays on the West Coast and his game starts at 7 o'clock, the East Coast and even the Midwest, while they know who Mike Trout is because he's otherworldly, they don't get a chance to see him day in and day out. And because he hasn't been in the postseason all but just once over the course of his career, that it's just, you just don't have that exposure. And it's unfortunate. Think about if Mookie Betts, played in Seattle for the first bit of his career as opposed to playing in Boston. He probably, yes, he's a great player, but he just didn't, he wouldn't have had the same cachet because he wouldn't have had the same audience and wouldn't have been in the postseason, wouldn't have had the the exposure that he's had as a Boston Red Sox and now as a, a Los Angeles Dodger. I, th I think the exposure part of it is massive. And while he might be on the cover of all these video games for Mike Trout, and and also to June's point, Mickey Mantle was hanging out with stars of stars. <laughs> yeah. He was going out and, and having a good time and putting himself out there. And, and Trout's just not that guy. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with him not being that guy. He's not hitting home runs and pounding his chest like Ronald Acuna is. Is he getting excited about home runs? Sure. But he's he's not that type of personality. He shows up at the ballpark. He gets his job done. He doesn't have a lot of flash. And, and maybe that's part of it, too. But I, I think the majority of it is just because he plays on the West Coast and, and his fan base is 
essentially just the West Coast, unless he's playing on a Sunday night game somewhere or he's got the the top billing of a midweek game. It just He just doesn't have the exposure being a Los Angeles Angel as if he were a Yankee or a Washington National or somebody who's on the East Coast. Right. Right. And just to build off of Jeff's point, Mookie has played for two iconic franchises in baseball. He's played for the Red Sox and the Dodgers, and he's won World Series titles in both of those places and played crucial roles in that kind of stuff happening. And at the end of the day, in I think just in American sports in general, people look at that championship rings, the number of rings someone has, and it matters in creating someone's legacy. And so obviously Mike Trout is by far the best player of this generation. You know, I, I often think about how differently people would be talking about Mookie as in terms of being a this a similar type of legendary generational player if Mike Trout just didn't exist as a human being. But Mookie is more marketable and he's and he's putting himself out there more because he has won World Series and he has a kind of flashier playing style and he's he's been willing to put himself out there as a as a personality now now that, especially now that he's in Los Angeles. Is Mike Trout even the best-known player on the Los Angeles Angels team right now? <laughs> I, I think that's a fair question. I recall a few years ago, somebody was telling me that Tim Tebow is probably more famous in, in the general realm, not baseball, of course, but more people know who Tim Tebow is playing minor league baseball than most major league players. I think that's accurate. I think Tim, Te Tim Tebow is the most famous baseball player in the country at one point because he's Tim Tebow. Right. So is Shohei Otani better known, I'd say worldwide, than, than Mike Trout? Probably. I think so. Worldwide, no doubt. I mean, just because his audience is bigger, it spans so much further. Those, those fans in Japan were fans of Shohei Otani before they even knew who Mike Trout was. Right. And is MLB guilty of not promoting Shohei Otani as much as they could? Should he be iconic rather than just simply a fascinating baseball player? I think he should be one of the faces of baseball. He should be he should be front and center in all these marketing campaigns and because kids can dream of being both a pitcher and a hitter and it's such a unique skill set that he's basically like, you know, he has the, he can hit a baseball at the exit velocity like matched by John Carlos Stanton and then also throws a 102 mile per hour fastball. Like there's something so uniquely special and generationally talented in that and you know, I think sports writers and baseball writers as a whole are also guilty of this. I feel like as much as we love talking about Shohei, I feel like he still doesn't get enough excitement and hype around him because, like, it is truly absurd what he's doing right now. He's going to pitch and hit tonight. And the last time we were able to talk about a player who had the skill set to do what he's doing is literally Babe Ruth. And Babe Ruth is an American icon, historically speaking. So as much as, like, Baseball nerds and people like us who spend all of our, our time thinking about the sport love talking about Shohei. I feel like MLB could be doing more because he's he's just so uniquely talented in a way that we've just never we haven't seen before. Yeah, and you think about the guys that are the college players that are both hitting and, and pitching like a Brendan McKay right now with the Tampa Bay Rays. It doesn't even pale in comparison to what Shohei's doing. It's not even close. They're not even the same stratosphere. You know, as a brewer, you're you're looking at Brooks Kieschnick, and it's not even in the same neighborhood of having the same conversation. He should be more marketed just because he is doing both at such a high level. He's fascinating to watch. And there, there have been people that have been doubting it since the beginning, since he ever signed. And he's out there just proving everybody wrong. And it's fun to watch. I also think it just just to make a quick point, I also think it just speaks to the way that American markets 
maybe tend to underrate some of the Asian baseball leagues because Shohei was this good when he was playing for the Nippon Ham Fighters, but because he was playing in the MPB, people were doubting whether or not it would translate to MLB. And it certainly has. Jeff, Milwaukee is in the central time zone, of course, so you don't have the same issues that the West Coast teams do, but you're a small market team. Are the Brewers' best players underappreciated by most fans around the country? I think so. I don't think they get the the credit that sometimes they're due. And really, you can go back to Christian Yelich and his, when he emerged and was the MVP in 2018, he put the Brewers on the map. People weren't talking about the Brewers for years. They had that playoff run in 2011, and then they just kind of got forgotten about until they made a, a little brief run in 2014, and September happened, and uh, the playoffs were not to be, but then Christian Yelich comes and, and they have a little bit more cachet now. He is one of the faces of baseball when he's on the field. Uh, at least he was in 2018 and 2019. And now you've got two Cy Young candidates, potentially, in Brandon Woodruff and Corbin Burns that not a lot of people are talking about until you see them. You don't realize how good they are. And, you know, Woodruff is pitching tonight for the Brewers. Corbin Burns comes back, and he's going to start on Thursday against the Cardinals. And, and hopefully, after six weeks of the season, the, the rest of the country is going to get an opportunity to see how good these guys have been. But it, it's very similar to the Mike Trout discussion that we just had. Because the Brewers are a small market team, they're not on national television a lot. Yes, you can access games whenever you want to in this day and age, but you have to actively seek that out unless someone is telling you, oh my gosh, you have to check these guys out. More often than not, you're not going to do that. So I think that that players in Milwaukee do get underappreciated. It's it's not because they're not out there doing their best and and social media. I think the Brewers social media team has done a really nice job of trying to get them into the limelight and winning all these fan polls and all the other fun stuff. But you have to actively seek them out because they just don't get the same exposure and the same ratings that some of the other clubs demand. Yeah, for sure. Devin Williams with his airbender is somewhat well-known, but really only because of Pitching Ninja. Right, (laughs) right. Same thing. Josh Hader also should probably be better known. If Josh Hader had short hair, and I guess there was the controversy that came up briefly, without those things, he is almost invisible to most of the country, as good as he is. Yeah, and that's unfortunate because Josh Hader is is one of the most dominant, if not the most dominant relievers over the last four years. And you can make an argument that he is the most dominant reliever in the last four years uh, for the multiple roles that he's taken on and because of the hair. But that's unfortunately what he's known for is the hair. It's awesome. It's great. But boy, does he throw fastballs and now sliders and change-ups that back up the great hair. And he's becoming a flat-out pitcher, not just a thrower anymore. He, he's amazing to watch. And, and it is a shame that, that he doesn't have the national cachet that he should. And with pitchers and throwers in mind, uh, we have two no-hitters in the past week by a pair of crafty left-handers, not by the flamethrowers that we tend to see these days. June, is that a good thing for baseball? I have been loving the success of John Means this year, especially because he's a guy who's working off of his like insanely great changeup and everything else is kind of built around it. Like He doesn't throw... He, I was looking this up today. He, you know, his his average velocity in May has been 93 miles per hour, and especially in an age where 
you have Joe Schmo coming out of every single bullpen in the major leagues throwing 101. Uh, it's such a refreshing change of pace in that he's really pitching and thinking about how to locate his stuff. I just generally love variety in baseball. There's so many ways you can succeed on the mound. And one of my favorite pitchers of all time is Greg Maddox. And he he was a guy who depended on his command and didn't have, you know, 100 miles per hour to, to pull out whenever he wanted. And he, he was one of the greatest pitchers ever because he was so smart in how he approached attacking hitters. And so I love seeing this variety uh, at the major league level right now. Right. But of course, you are a nerd. You're a twenty-five. <laughs> uh, so, circling back to to where we started, June, you're a twenty-five-year-old nerd. Does the average twenty-five-year-old yes. baseball fan find it fascinating to see guys like Miley and Means pitch, or do they want and expect the hundred mile an hour heat? I think it's a tough question. I think it's I think it's dependent on the pitcher to a certain degree because there's there's kind of like a I feel like just generally across baseball we've seen a decreased importance placed on starting pitching because they're f- pitching fewer innings. There's less of a mystique around starting pitching. I think Jacob deGrom was kind of bringing it in a way this year before he got injured that we hadn't necessarily seen since like Pedro, maybe in the nineties and you know, the late nineties and 2000, where it was just like, it felt like every single time he took the mound, it was an event. We, I feel like we, baseball as a whole has really lost all of that. And I'm not sure that when everyone is throwing 100 miles per hour, it doesn't feel as special as it did even like five or six years ago. And so I'm not sure that there's like a, a, a specific type of pitching that is particularly flashy or interesting to bring in young fans. I think just like being excellent at what you do brings you above the pack regardless. So, the, the, And that might just might be the baseball nerd in me, the bias of the baseball nerd in me. But I, I love watching someone like John Means pitch because he has such an interesting approach on the mound. And I'm kind of with you, June. And, and I'm kind of – I think I'm in between the two of you guys in terms of age – to where I, I did grow up looking at the box scores every day to see who was hitting home runs and all that. And kind of the, the tweener before the internet, kind of college was the internet for me. So, I mean, it was, for me, watching all these guys, like Wade Miley throws a no-hitter. Having had him in Milwaukee and knowing who he is and, and getting to know him, it's awesome for me to see that. And I, for me, in this day and age, you have to grab attention. You have to grab attention fast because that attention is going to go away in 13 seconds if you don't grab that attention. And for a guy like Wade Miley, who works so fast, action is happening immediately. Like, that's what I think this younger generation is starving for. You have guys that are throwing 100 miles an hour, but they take 35 seconds in between pitches because they've got to rest and relax and bring up their load again so that they can throw 100 miles an hour every other pitch. But for a guy like Wade Miley or Brent Suter, who I get to see, who could finish an at-bat in a five-pitch at-bat in 40 seconds, like that's what I think baseball needs a little bit more of. They need guys working quicker so that you have that instant action that's why I think the extra inning rule is great because it creates so much drama with a runner at second base to start. As much as I didn't like it at first, uh, once I've seen it, I think it's great. But I, I think baseball just needs more action. It needs guys working quicker. And, and while it's fun to watch guys throw 100 miles an hour, to June's point a couple of moments ago, and anybody walking down the street, you shake a tree and somebody's throwing 100 miles an hour. <laughs> Dude, give me give me some guy who's throwing a cutter at 87 and maxes out with his fastball at 91 
but the left side of the infield is so busy because he's getting a ton of ground balls. Like, give me that stuff. Give me maybe that's just me being old school and an old soul, but I love that. That is so fun to me. I think the solution to all of this is to train every pitcher coming up to be a knuckleballer. <laughs> so we just fill every rotation with a knuckleballer. Stephen Wright's always going to have a job. Yes, knuckleballers are good. I am very old school. I shouldn't say very old school. I am very old school in certain respects. I hate the ghost runner, for sure. I am of the opinion that MLB should consider joining NPB and the KBO and allowing ties after 12 innings rather than going with the ghost runner. Do either of you like that idea? Oh, that's interesting. I have personally been a fan of the runner on second base role because I kind of like the high stakes drama immediately in extra innings. I know that's probably an it's an unpopular take among a lot of uh, baseball traditionalists, but I like seeing kind of the high pressure immediately out of the gate, even if it even if a guy, you know, if even if a runner can score, I guess without a team getting a hit, which is I guess, I think kind of the the one downside to all of that and a game can end without any team getting a hit in the extra innings. I'm with Jeff in that I I like having the drama immediately right out of the gate uh, in extra innings and so for me I I would just prefer to have a winner rather than ending ending games and ties. Yeah, I'm out on ties. So, not a uh, Premier League soccer fan probably. <laughs> no, no, not not into the soccer. Not not or football either. <laughs> I, I enjoy soccer, but for baseball, I just want to not. I want to have a winner on a night-to-night basis. Yeah, a few more things, guys, before before we uh, close up. Is three true outcomes a four-letter word? <laughs> <laughs> Outcome is, a, is one word, right? I think. I think I'm stretching definitions here a little bit. <laughs> Podcast host prerogative. Like we talked about a couple of minutes ago, I, I feel like you need more action. And the three true outcomes, the strikeouts, the walks, and the and the home runs. Yes, it might put butts in seats to get a bunch of home runs, but give me hit and run all day long. Give me triples. Give me doubles. Moving guys over. Give me some action. Show me some skill. I, I'm, I'm more about that. So I... I if you're stretching rules and four-letter words and whatnot, I would say it's 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 troublesome, in my opinion. I'm really intrigued by how these these rule experiments that are happening in the Atlantic League and the minor leagues are going to play out. I I mean I agree with Jeff in that like there was that Nike marketing campaign that like chicks dig the long ball, and I feel like baseball has like really leaned into that from a playing standpoint over the last couple of years and. The type of baseball I watched growing up, you know, home, home runs were obviously a big deal. I grew up in the heart of steroid era, but you still saw doubles and singles and stolen bases. And obviously, from a stolen base standpoint, it doesn't make a lot of analytical sense to, unless you're stealing above a certain percentage rate, to do it on a night-to-night basis. But I want to see more action. I want to see hit and runs. I want to see doubles hit the gap. I want to see guys going for triples. Like, there's only so much you can kind of entertain yourself with during a baseball game unless you're a baseball nerd who's following the strategy pitch to pitch when most of the outcome is you know home run walk or 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 strikeout and and jeff one of your jobs i guess your primary job is is to entertain listeners some of your listeners are june's age some of them are my age many are in the middle how do you balance the preferences of older and younger listeners it's a great question. So working on the medium that I work on the most, because I'm doing radio and television these days, and when I work with Bob Euchre, for instance, who's 87 years old, and 
you know, you're you're talking to a guy who used to hang out with Mickey Mantle as we're going full circle on this whole conversation. <laughs> it's different. Like my preparation when I work with Bob is okay, give me give me nuts and bolts and that's it. And then wherever he's going to go with the game, that's where we're going to go. And a lot of that is story time and because that's that's his bread and butter. It's not analytics. It's not describing what X woba is, right? <laughs> so that that's just something that's not even in our vernacular when we do games. Uh, when I work with my other partner on the radio, Lane, we do some of that, but we we really just focus on what's happening on the field. And and when I'm on TV, and that's where I think analytics comes into more play. Because on the radio, if you start diving into all these analytics and spouting numbers off, like my brain hurts when I start talking about that sometimes. Imagine if you're driving a car and you start hearing that type of stuff. What what your brain is trying to do is you're trying to focus on driving and then trying to comprehend what I'm trying to describe to you in your head. Like that's that's a problem. So for television, I think it's a better medium because you might be able to visually explain what we're talking about in terms of analytics and what it means. I think that's a better medium for that type of conversation and just trying to break it down in layman's terms. So again, my whole style and how I've always been as a broadcaster is entertain as if you're sitting at the bar or sitting in the backyard enjoying yourselves with your friends and you're narrating a game to them. That's how I want to entertain. That's how I want to broadcast. That's how I think baseball works on both radio and TV. And if you start getting inundated with all the stats, you're going to lose your stories and you're going to lose the fun, I think. So it needs to be a happy balance if you're going to talk about it. But again, how many times are you sitting at a bar or in the backyard with with mom and dad or whatever it is, and you start talking about exit velocities or talking about vertical break on someone's changeup. That's just not a natural conversation piece, <laughs> right? So it doesn't happen a lot in my broadcasts. Well, that that's a good question, though, Jeff. June, again, with the caveat that you're a nerd, how many 25-year-olds do sit in their backyards listening to baseball, hoping that they hear more analytics? I mean, I really, everything Jeff said really resonated with me because like even as a nerd, I don't necessarily want to hear all of that stuff during the broadcast. Like I personally love, you know, reading fan graphs and going to baseball prospectus and going to baseball savant and looking up all this stuff for me when I'm researching stories. But I think baseball as a whole, especially with the rise of analytics over the course of the last decade or so, something I think it's kind of strayed away from has been the storytelling aspect of the culture because, you know, we talked about Mickey Mantle earlier. There's like this persona legend building that happens around someone like him that happened way back when that I think the sport has kind of strayed away from. And I think this ties back into the marketing thing to bring things full circle because at the end of the day, we can talk about how great someone is with the nitty grittiest of analytics and their defensive run saved and WOBA and all that stuff. But what will really get fans connecting with these athletes is the personal stories that they have, the journeys that they've been on. And, and trying to bring the human aspect of the game into this, which I think when we as a media, baseball media in particular, are so focused on the stats and the day-to-day results, we can often stray away from the fact that these are human beings with stories. And John Means, beyond like his insane peripherals this year, he has an incredible story. He was a guy who was an underdog and he had a LinkedIn profile looking for a job and it was a substitute teacher before he became 
you know, one of the best pitchers in the major leagues this year. That's an incredible story that resonates with a casual fan in a way that, you know, talking about the dip in his changeup or the movement in his changeup or, you know, how many swings, percentage of swings he gets on outside the strike zone that won't capture the regular fan in a way that his human story would. And so I think that that's something that I personally try to focus on in, in my work is obviously caring about the analytics, but also trying to bring out the human nature of, of all of these athletes who have interesting stories. For sure. And we are basically out of time, but I want to touch quickly on one more thing. Bat flips. Good for baseball or not good for baseball? Great for baseball. 100%. It creates discussion about unwritten rules and it creates excitement and it creates a good clip for Twitter. I think it's great unless you pop up and flip your bat. Like, what are we doing? Come on. <laughs> no pop-up bat flips. Give me a bat flip in a dramatic moment. Give me a Give me a bat flip when you know you got it. But don't pop up to short and flip your bat like you hit it 700 feet. I love a good warning track bat flip, though, because it, it kind of it kind of brings attention to the sport in maybe a slightly negative way. But also we're talking about it right now. So, right. That by itself, I think, is indicative of how bat flips is generating conversation for baseball. I love it. Jock Peterson hitting that ball to, to deep right, but it gets caught in the wind in Wrigley and he's, you know, talking to his dugout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ooh, it's caught <laughs> on the warning track. See, that's fun stuff. <laughs> hey, talking about baseball is always fun. And this was a great conversation. June, Jeff, thank you, both of you, for coming on to Fangrass Audio. Thanks for having us on. Thanks, David. Appreciate it. Hello, this is Tony Wolf. I am a contributor at Fangraphs.com, and I am joined by Sarah Sanchez, fellow Fangraphs contributor, and we're going to talk about no-hitters. Both of us wrote pieces about no-hitters this week, and uh, Sarah, I'm going to be honest, I'm a little bit nervous. We're recording this segment a couple of days before it actually goes up, and I'm worried about possibly missing like two to five other no-hitters that are going to happen between now and when this actually posts. Yeah, I'm a little nervous about that, too, because the no-hitter notifications are coming in on my phone fast and furious. I mean, I actually, this is the lead-in to my piece, which should post in about a day. But the, you know, I got the Wade Miley notification and, hi, Wade Miley no-hitter. Like, I, I like Wade Miley, no shade to Wade Miley, but Wade Miley notification. And as I'm watching that game, I get the Sean Mania perfect game notification. And it just seems like no hitters are becoming a nightly event. It's overwhelming. <laughs> yeah, uh, especially getting the MLB uh, at-bat notifications every time someone's going into the seventh with one. I, I saw a little bit of your piece already and saw that there's already been 14 no hitters taken into the seventh this season, and there were just 32 in 2019. I think even fewer than that in, in 2018 or 17. And for anyone who's lost count, there's already been four Nine inning ones that have finished. Joe Musgrove threw the first one in Padres history. His was the first, and then Carlos Rodon threw one. He was one hit batter away from a perfect game. John Means threw one for the Orioles. He was a dropped strikeout away from a perfect game. And then, yeah, Wade Miley, famously not dominant <laughs> starter, just threw one on Friday. And it's, it is interesting that. You know, there have been, I, I feel like there are so many different pitchers that are just having unbelievable years right now. Uh, like, obviously, Jacob deGrom is fantastic, as always. 
Corbin Burns is completely dominant. All of these guys, there are all these pitchers, Garrett Coles, another one who look completely dominant, and yet it's it's not necessarily those guys throwing them. And that, that almost makes you more nervous because you're like, at some point, their turn's going to come. And the, <laughs> the, how, how high is this count of no-hitters going to go? Well, that's a great question. So it's worth noting that in the last, since 1901, which is when the American League was incorporated and joined the National League, it's sort of what we think about as, you know, the MLB that we know, the most no-hitters that have ever happened in a single season is seven. And we're already at four, five if you count the Mad Bum one, which MLB doesn't, so I won't either. But that is four or five weeks into the season is a thing that has only happened one other time. It was in 1917. And the game of baseball was so radically and fundamentally different at that point in time that there were a lot of different things going on there that are distinct from today's game. But we're in a season where batting average is the lowest that it's ever been in that same time period. And like you said, pitchers, the dominant pitchers are dominating. But even the sort of like middling, we're just going to give you some inning guys, are having these moments where they are completely in control of games. I mean, it is the wildest thing to watch John Means just absolutely dominating hitters with first pitch strikes, fastballs, and then playing that off a changeup and doing it perfectly for almost perfectly, I guess I should say, for nine innings. It's unbelievable. There have been certain, uh, there have been various periods of time in which there, you know, this isn't the first time we've had a bunch of no hitters really clustered together. Uh, as you mentioned, the record is seven, which is three higher than what we currently have, obviously. Back in 2015, in fact, which is one of the years that we had seven, there were six in a period of less than three months. They just happened one right after another. And it seemed, of course, that coincided with another period of pitchers being really dominant and and a period of low offense in Major League Baseball. That was that was the last time it seemed like we were sort of in this zone where you wondered, is this happening too much? Is, you know, what is going on here? And then 2016, you only had one. Uh, Jake Arrieta completely dominated the Reds. Uh, 2017, you had another one, Edinson Volquez, no hit the Diamondbacks. Uh, there's only two other no-hitters in each of 2018 and 19 that were thrown by a single person, and then a few others that were team no-hitters. 2020, uh, shortened season, only had two no-hitters. Do you think that, you know, going off of what you saw in the research for this and you know, some of the possible causes for this latest bunch of no-hitters, do you think this is something that is sort of another random event where it's just it's going to taper off pretty soon or do you see a little bit more going on that that could lead to this continuing for a while so it's interesting that you bring up the 2015 era and this is something that obviously didn't make it into my piece but i you know i can't help but think of what are all of these causes that are going on out there in baseball land what is what is making hitters who have pretty consistently and admittedly no hitter rates are weird I mentioned this in the piece but like they don't come on a pace right like you can't say ah it's been 350 games so now we will have a no hitter that's not really how the events work they require a ton of luck and they require a ton of circumstances so they have a really atypical grouping but it's something that has for the bulk of baseball history generally occurred 
at a 0.13% rate of games and occasionally spiked to where in a season you might have a 0.48 was the highest season totals that I found on a per game basis for no hitters. This season, we're seeing a spike that is almost double that. And so it it makes you wonder what has changed, right? Like, what are the things that have changed this season that we can look at and maybe see, did that cause this no-hitter spike? And I think the most obvious thing that's changed in 2021 is the baseball. Without getting into too much drama about whether or not MLB deliberately changed the ball in the 2015-2017 range when home run rates started spiking originally... It sort of makes you wonder if there was like a cluster of hitters adapting to a new ball, admittedly, maybe not on purpose, um, but to new ball movement at that time, too, because we know in retrospect that there were ball changes there that we saw in home run rates and other things. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, it is interesting that you mentioned the ball because, you know, Major League Baseball came into this year saying, hey, it's going to be different. I I don't remember if it was said explicitly, but it it did seem to be a thing where we want to, it's too much homers and strikeouts. We're trying to get the ball in play more and we're trying to knock down some of these home run levels. And it seemed like the implicit hope was that those home runs were going to turn into like doubles and singles and be more action but it seems like the home runs are like if they're going if they are going away right now they're just turning into outs and the balls just it just seems like it's it's still just as hard to convert batted balls into hits but now you've tried to take away uh, some of these home runs off the top so yeah I mean right now the batting average across the league is the lowest it's ever been strikeouts as you mentioned in your piece have continued to go up and yeah I think those are both serious problems that Major League Baseball is going to have to contend with as this season goes on and the the rate of no hitters I think just really keeps putting that at at the forefront if you're Major League Baseball right now you know if you're working in you know, the commissioner's office, you know, one of those positions, how concerning is this for you? I would be super concerned. I don't remember which way DEFCON goes, but I think I'd be at like the second highest one. Think about this for a second. Your MLB, you deliberately tweaked the most important piece of equipment. You admitted it. You said that you wanted to do that to try to get non-home run offense back into the game of baseball. We know from the piece that Devin Fink published a week or so ago that about a third of the balls that used to be home runs, like you mentioned, are just turning into outs now. So that didn't get you more offense. That got you definitionally less offense, right? You lost a third of those things that used to be automatic scoring events, and now they're just sending guys back to the dugout. But you're coupling that with players who are are pretty clearly missing the baseball in some key ways. I mean, one of the things that I've been fascinated by for 2021 is the number of of hitters, some of whom are very good hitters, who have been struggling with contact in the zone, which means they're missing pitches they used to hammer. And that says to me that something subtle is going on that they haven't adapted to yet. For whatever reason, the ball is moving in ways that they do not anticipate right now. Now, I fully expect major league hitters can adjust and adapt to that over time, right? They're going to see this ball a certain number of times, and at some point they're going to pop out of it. 
and they're going to start hitting those pitches in the zone again. But for right now, it feels like everything is advantage pitchers. And I don't know about you, but this feels a lot to me. The way I have started to feel about no hitter alerts feels a lot like how I felt when five or six guys hit 40 home runs as of August. And we knew that there were going to be like a dozen people hit 40 home runs in, I don't, it might not be a dozen. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but as we're like staring down 2017 and 2019 and it's like, Oh, well, 40 home runs is just a thing you do now. Yeah. It is weird that, that major league baseball keeps running into this almost like philosophical thing of like just too much of a good thing. Like home runs are awesome. We all love to see them. And then home run rates just soared in the later part of the last decade. And suddenly a home run became something that, I don't know, it's probably too far to say that you're annoyed by by <laughs> them like individually. But at the end of a game, you look up at the scoreboard and say, and say, oh, these two teams scored like a combined five runs and all of them happened on home runs and that's like the third time I've seen that this week like it it's sort of like in retrospect it it kind of dulls the excitement of this objectively really cool thing and the barrage of no hitters right now seems like that on like a whole different level where a no hitter is supposed to be like a no hitter is supposed to be like the most exciting thing you can see next to a perfect game probably in terms of certainly if you're in attendance at a game or even if you're just watching on TV you know I remember as a fan of the Reds I remember watching Homer Bailey's first no hitter back in 2012 and I had never seen a pitcher from my favorite team throw a no hitter yet of course I was a I was a younger person then but I, I remember in that game from like the fifth inning on I'm completely insane like I'm losing my mind <laughs> I'm on my feet I'm gasping every time someone makes contact I'm jumping in the air every time someone swings and misses like I'm on the edge and I'm basically the same way in 2013 when Wade Miley threw his no hitter on Friday I was like happy for the guy there was just that like dulled feeling in, in my head where I'm like man Wade I just saw this is this is a lot this is a lot of no hitters man <laughs> like I'm I'm happy for Wade and the weird part that comes with that obviously is like no hitters are still a, like when you're watching them in the moment they're still really impressive to see like on an individual level like Wade Miley he struck out eight guys and got 15 ground balls and if you look at his like pitch chart from the game like every pitch he threw was like on a corner like it, it's an unbelievable individual feat and yet like the more those stack up one right after another I'm not at a point yet obviously where I'm like oh I'm not going to be that impressed by a no hitter but I'm I'm almost wondering if it does continue at at this rate like when that would come up where where are you with that so I'm still super enthusiastic about no hitters but I did have, I think I mentioned this a, a few minutes ago, like I did have this moment while I'm watching Wade Miley finish his no hitter and I see that Sean Manaya is taking a perfect game into the seventh. I was like, again, is this all we do now? We just sit up at night and see which pitcher is going to throw a no hitter. And clearly it's not quite that bad, but it does feel like once a week we have a chance to see at least one guy and possibly two throw a no hitter. Now, I want to be clear. I think no hitters are interesting whether they're overly dominant performances or not. As a Cubs fan, I watched Alec Mills throw probably the least dominant no-hitter <laughs> I had ever seen last season. In fact, if you go to that game and you look at the amount of hard-hit balls the Brewers hit, 
you would you're just stunned you can't understand how Alec Mills got a no hitter out of that the Brewers had like nine or 11 I can't remember off the top of my head exactly balls that were so hard hit that their expected batting average was through the roof and the Cubs just happened to be positioned perfectly to keep those from becoming hits so Alec Mills has a no hitter and the Brewers go down as being no hit by Alec Mills that's interesting and fun to watch. And I think that that's as interesting in some ways as watching somebody strike out 17 guys. Both of those are dominant in different ways, right? In one case, it's the defense making a ton of great plays. In another instance, it's the pitcher just absolutely mowing people down and seeing his game plan come to fruition. That said, I'm not not enthusiastic (laughs) about no hitters at the moment, but I am worried that if we have a season here where let's say they do shatter that seven game mark, that benchmark that has been the most no hitters for games in the last 121 seasons. Say it's 10, say it's 12, say they do what it actually kind of looks like they would be on pace for again with the caveat that on pace with no hitters doesn't really work. And it's double, it's like 14. Does that asterisk all of the guys who got no hitters this year? Does that make the Musgrove or Rodon game any less impressive because they got that in the year of the no-hitter as opposed to just having that game happen in regular time? I don't know. That's what I worry about. I worry that it cheapens the no-hitters that are occurring this year in ways that guys don't even understand yet. Yeah. And it's weird to be like in the early stage of this season where you 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 do, you just don't, like like you said, you know, you just don't know right now you when we watched Joe Musgrove at the start of the year that was like awesome like through and through it was the first one for the Padres finally in their history he was completely dominant and then Carlos Rodon throws a no-hitter and he almost has a perfect game and after everything he's been through that's a really good story and they're all good stories you know John Means is a great story Wade Miley you know I talked about my story was awful last year and lost his rotation job and probably wouldn't even have it this year if all the Reds pitchers were healthy at the start of the season. And so all of these are great stories, but yeah, it is, it, it's the fact that you, you don't want to be duped almost into being, being really excited about some of these and then, you know, be sitting here at the all-star break. Yeah. With like twice as many no hitters as we have right now and be like, well, this is, I guess like, I thought Wade Miley's was going to be really cool. And then like three other guys in the next three weeks did the same thing. And it's, it, yeah, it, it's every individual one is still really compelling to watch and really exciting. But it, it is just one of those things where a no hitter, one of the things about it is that it's supposed to be really rare it's one of the rarest events that can happen in a baseball game and when that stops being as rare then it's it just definitionally takes some of that spectacle away totally 0.13 percent like that's how rare a no hitter is supposed to be or has been over the last 121 years one of the things that i found when i was researching this piece that i thought was so interesting you were more likely to see a season with with zero no-hitters than you were to see a season with four, five, six, or seven no-hitters, right? There have been 19 seasons in that stretch where there were zero no-hitters. 
There's only been four where there's been seven. We're sitting in a, in a place where there are four right now. There's only been eight seasons where there were four no-hitters. In the entire season, we're sitting here with four on like the second week of May. I don't want it to be cheapened in the record books later. I think I'm still going to be excited watching them because there's nothing like watching a guy pitch the last nine outs, <laughs> knowing that all he has to do is get these nine outs <laughs> and it's going to be history making and any batter could just punch a ball in the right direction to make that not to, to get in the way of that happening. Right. I mean, you talked about Carlos Rodon's almost perfect game. There's a play late in that game. I think it's the second out in the ninth where Jose Abreu practically hurts himself diving for first base to prevent an infield hit. And if you're a White Sox fan, your mind is racing because if you lose Jose Abreu after all of the other injuries you've had, you are in a world of hurt. But at the same time, Jose Abreu is going to hurt himself if he has to to keep the no-hitter intact. And that's something like just viscerally you can relate to as a sports fan, you know? Yeah, I mean, we've we've seen a lot of the no-hitters you watch as a fan. You can remember like one or two plays from that game where it almost didn't happen. You know, that the guy needed to get full extension diving for a ball in the outfield or they robbed a home run or you know, did what Jose Abreu did. It, it's it's always really fun to see, you know, that that just adds to the the theater of it, you know, that it is this difficult and requires this many things going right and i don't know i i i hope that going forward i'm still hoping that this is something it, it's weird to root against no hitters happening for a while <laughs> but i do i hope that it calms down a little bit because as exciting as no hitters are hits are fun <laughs> like i like to watch hits it feels weird to say that like if you're watching a baseball game you are you're rooting for everyone's dreams to be achieved at the same time. Like it's, it's weird to be a casual fan when you don't have like an active rooting interest, but yeah, I like to see offense. I, I like to see guys getting hits. I like to see runs being put on the board. So I, I think we've, I, that makes me a little bit more comfortable saying like, all right, all right, pitchers, pitchers have had their, had their time now in the first month or so of the season. I'm ready to see, the offense break out a little bit. I don't know exactly how it will. I know the league-wide BABIP is sort of like, it's not quite as extreme as on the low end as it was last year, but it is pretty low. Like, even with all the strikeouts happening, the league as a whole is still getting pretty unlucky on balls in play. And I, I don't know if that is because teams are better at shifting or if it is something that will naturally regress to the higher side. I am sort of betting on the latter, uh, which makes me think that as especially as the, the weather warms up, we're going to see fewer of these. Uh, but I, I don't know. Do you think do you think that this tapers off or do you think that this is just where we are now? Well, I'm on the same camp as you. I, I really hope that all of this just kind of regresses to the mean later in the season. And what that would mean is that hitters would go on a hot streak any day now and just start tearing the cover off the ball. And that may not be in the form of home runs. Maybe it's in the form of doubles. Maybe it's in the form of triples. All of those are fun too, right? So that would be outstanding and probably the best thing for baseball. So I'm a Cubs fan and I 
watch a lot of three true outcomes baseball as a result because the entire lineup is really built around walk, get on base, you strike out a ton, but somebody hits a home run and there is the offense. And the last few games, they've been playing a little bit more small ball. The weather has been sort of was really cold on the last homestand. And so they were playing a lot more, you know, contact type ball, less home, fewer home runs. And it was just such a more aesthetically pleasing thing to see somebody hit a double, move the runner over, hit a single, drive in two. It was just, I miss that form of baseball. I like that form of baseball. I'm not saying that I don't want to see a no hitter here or there, but I would like to see games where there's just some really good station to station baseball being played. I feel like, I feel like my dad right now, actually, because my dad, when I was growing up, used to say uh, that he liked doubles more than home runs because you could trade places and you could just keep the rally going. And I don't think I would go that far, but I do think that there's something that has been missing. And in Major League Baseball's attempt to get back to that offense that we are all used to, they keep creating unintended consequences that are not great. They're like, oh, well, there there are more home runs now until the home runs are like, okay, make it stop. They try to make the home run stop and it's like, oh my gosh, now players can't hit at all and all we have are these really low scoring games and a rash of no hitters, right? So there there has to be a happy medium there somewhere, but I don't think that they're going to get it by continually tinkering with the main piece of equipment in the game. I think they need to do a little bit more planning and maybe some structural changes. Yeah, I mean, anecdotally, the Reds, I think, are sort of on a similar path with the Cavs, where I mean, Monday night, they scored 14 runs on 15 hits, and only one of them was a home run. So yeah, hopefully there is whether it's an adjustment in the way batters are approaching things at the plate, you know, sort of adjusting what their intentions are as far as hitting home runs and sort of trying to adapt to the new environment that they are in. I would, yeah, I, as I said, I would like to see more of that style of, of baseball and, and see, more action, more doubles, more balls in play in general. That's it's. It took me a while to reach that sort of philosophical conclusion because <laughs> I'm not. I'm not very. I'm weirdly not very ph- philosophical about baseball. I tend to just like enjoy watching it and will take what it gives me for the most part. So it takes a lot for me to be like this is no longer something that I enjoy. So, but I I appreciated talking to you. Sarah, do you, uh, before we get out of here, do you have, can I get you to give a, what's your prediction for the the final number of no hitters that we end up getting in 2021? Ooh, that's a, that's a tough question. I actually think that the pitcher friendly environment is going to continue for a bit, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to result in no hitters. As we stated a couple of times, that's such a result of luck in conjunction with a pitcher friendly environment. I think that 2021 will break the record. I think there will be eight or more. I hope it's on the low end of that eight, though. I hope that hitters figure something out and we wind up maybe with all of the no hitters being clustered before the all-star break. And then after the all-star break, it's just really good offensive station to station baseball as the hitters figure everything out. And we have that lovely September playoff race baseball with and there hasn't been a no hitter in months. (laughs) What about yeah. you? What do you think? I was also going to say eight, but in the in an effort to be original, I will say nine. Because, 
<laughs> because I, I do, yeah, I do think that this slows a bit down the road, but we've started off just so hot that I, I think, I mean, Jacob DeGrom's got to throw a no-hitter at some point, right? Like, that's inevitable. And I feel like there are a few pitchers like that where it's, it feels like we're just waiting. So, yeah, I think this is definitely, as as you mentioned, this is going to be a the year of the no-hitter. Uh, and I hope I hope it is singular in that aspect and not joined by uh, more seasons down the road. I totally agree with that. And what's interesting about this, you know, you've got all of these no hitters being thrown by the not Jacob DeGrom's so far. So at some point, you, you got to think that Garrett Cole or Shane Bieber is going to get in on this and add their name to the record book this season. We'll find out. Yeah, I will be still tuning in every time I get the ad bat notification saying that someone is is trying to do do some something historical until until further notice. So Oh yeah. It's been good talking to you, Sarah. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, same retuning in and it was awesome talking to you too, Tony. This has been Fangraphs Audio. We hope you like what you heard. Remember to check out our merch page, consider getting an ad-free subscription, and check out the Fangraphs newsletter. It comes out every weekday with a good summary of the many things we have going on at Fangraphs.com every day. We will be back next week with another episode. Have a good weekend.